You're listening to the Australian Water Association podcast series. My name is Joe Taranto and joining me is Damien Mortimer, the Remote Communities Technical Support Officer at SA Water. And we are discussing addressing drinking water fluoride levels in remote communities. Welcome, Damien. G'day, Joe. Look, there's a lot of challenges that come to mind when dealing with drinking water in the Australian outback. Um, can you tell us about your experience in South Australia? Um, well, distance is obviously a major, major problem. And uh, in fact, we spend a day just getting to and from the job. And that, the land's very, very arid. Damien, tell me what the drinking water looks like in some of these communities. Most of the time, it looks as good as anything you get out of the tap here in Melbourne. And taste? Uh, taste. <laughs> it, it varies quite considerably from very salty, um, beyond, uh, well above what the Australian Drinking Water Guidelines consider acceptable, down to um, not too bad at all. But then we've also had things where, uh, because of the salts, the communities actually have a reputation for having very sweet water and people actually prefer it. So it's, it's quite variable, but groundwaters are very stable, so it varies more in location rather than in time. It's not like we have good water this week and terrible water next week. It's good water over here and not so good water over there. Some water comes out of the ground and is, is very nice. Some of it has some, some mineralogical issues, and uh, one of the problems we do encounter is fluoride. So this is naturally occurring fluoride that's, that's right. in the groundwater. Yes. And, and what's the concern when fluoride levels are a bit higher than they should be? Once they're uh, moderately above the health limit, there's the chance of uh, affecting the formation of your adult teeth. And once you get significantly above the health limits, then it can also affect your, um, uh, cause a condition called skeletal fluoriosis, which can be crippling. Uh, we don't have levels high enough where that would be expected in the APY lands. So you're working with 13 communities in APY lands. Tell us about the APY lands. What does APY stand for? The APY lands, it's the Anganyu Pinjachara, Yankanyuchara lands. And these are a section of communities? It's, it's a group of Aboriginal communities in the far northwest of South Australia. The farthest out is Piplajara, which is about 1,600 kilometres by road from Adelaide. And the nearest would be in Dalton, which is about 1,100 kilometres from Adelaide. So we, we actually fly to Alice Springs and drive back down. Um, there's at least four communities that are affected by uh, higher fluoride levels than you're comfortable with. Um, what have you done there to address that? If, if I might just go back a little bit there, if I may. Dealing with the water quality, what we noticed after a while was that where we had high calcium, the fluoride was low. And this fits in with the chemistry. So... Uh, where we've got permanently occupied communities with a decent number of people, putting in reverse osmosis is a well-understood technology, well-managed, and uh, so we're quite happy to do that. But with smaller communities, it doesn't stand up so well economically. And any of these high technologies, are, the further you get away from the, the support base, the harder they are to run. So a couple of these smaller communities uh, that we've taken on, we have got the potential for high fluoride, or we have got high fluoride, in fact. And so there's the possibility of using different, different and simpler technologies that are perhaps more robust and less uh, energy uh, hungry. And so can you tell us a little bit about these other technologies and, and I guess the work that you've done to investigate them? 
The first one, obviously, was reverse osmosis, which we already use. It's very well understood. A very powerful technology, but very, very power-intensive, energy-intensive. One alternative I've been investigating is capacitive deionisation. Now, that, in effect, works the opposite way to reverse osmosis. Instead of trying to get good water out of the solution, we just try and remove the salts. So its power requirement is much lower. It does appear to be more difficult to manage, and uh, I think it's very much a technology of the future, but I think it still needs to mature a bit. We've then got a couple of simpler technologies we're looking at. One is uh, titanium dioxide mineral sands, and they work by adsorbing the fluoride onto the sand. Uh, that's shown some promise, although I haven't been able to get it to work consistently yet. The, the other downside is you do wind up with a waste, a waste product, which is this fluoridated sand. Um, disposal of that shouldn't be difficult, but it's not something I've investigated at this point. And the last technology is calcite, which is just marble. The lure there is that it's low cost. We already use calcite for other purposes in the area, so there's no logistic demand. And if it works, you wind up with zero waste because it actually sequesters the calcium in a form your body can't absorb. And so you just drink it and it just passes through your system and through the system with no change. But that doesn't work everywhere, doesn't work all the time. It's quite a challenge, I guess. Um, and it sounds like there's still quite a bit of work to be done in this space. Is that how you see it? I, look, a lot of people have uh, gone after these, these issues. I'm no, not the first and I doubt I'll be the last. And yes, it, um, it is quite challenging, um, which is what makes it, makes it interesting. I understand you're actually doing some study in this space. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually just reaching the end of a, a master's degree uh, by research on this particular topic. Is there anything that you'd like to see um, focused on if there is more research in this space, particularly when it comes to the capacity of deionisation? Is, is there something that you feel needs to be invested in looking at this further? Look, I think we've got a, a strong trend of reaching for the, the highest technologies, and, and, and there are good reasons for that. These are really good technologies that are out there. But I think there's also a good re there are good reasons to return to simpler things at times, uh, and that sometimes gets lo uh, gets lost in the the uh, te technological grab, if you like. Particularly, as you said, with communities where you have got maybe a transient um, oh. population or small populations. Yeah. Um, I'm interested also in your stories around um, working with the community in some of these. Um, remote areas, um, how important is it to engage the community with um, information and education around drinking water? SA Water regards our uh, relationship with Indigenous people and Indigenous communities very highly. Um, they have a dedicated group which is in parallel, if you like, with our group. We're much more the nuts and bolts people. and uh, But we still, uh, for example, we seek a uh, anthropological approvals to make sure any work we do doesn't interfere with the local culture. Um, we meet with, uh, we tend to check into communities when we arrive. Uh, you do need permits to visit, which is the same as knocking on someone's door when you want to visit their house. It just sort of applies to a large area of South Australia. So yeah, we, we work alongside perhaps more than with in our particular case, but uh, SA Water uh, genuinely works with um, Aboriginal uh, people and communities. We've been talking with Damien Mortimer, Remote Communities Technical Support Officer at SA Water. 
Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joe.